0: The Fiona Show, formerly known as The Jobcast, with Fiona Healy Fiona Healy, Fiona Healy, Fiona Healy, Fiona Healy, Fiona Healy, Fiona
1: Healy, Fiona Healy, Fiona Healy. Have you Fiona started Healy? recording already? No, Fiona. <laughs> right, sorry.
2: <laughs>
1: this is still the Jobcast. With Fiona Healy, Hello. Josh Hayes, Noel McCallum and Emma Alexander. The Jobcast, November 2017 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to What is Still the Jobcast? Uh, I'm Josh and joining me in the studio are Niall and as you may have already worked out, Fiona. In the show this time, Professor Anna Scaife answers your astronomical questions, and we, by which we mean just Fiona, interview several Pulsar people about their research as part of the conference proceedings for the 50 Years of Pulsars conference held at Jodrell Bank in September.
0: First up, I interview uh, Dame Professor Jocelyn Bell-Burnell, in which we talk not really about Pulsars at all, actually, but about um, equality for women in science. Okay, so... Uh... Professor Belbrunel. I um, Jocelyn. Jocelyn. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Jocelyn, um, welcome back to Jodrell Bank and welcome back to the Jodcast.
2: Thank you. It's great to be back here.
0: Good, good. I'm glad. Um, so uh, uh, just uh, for our, any listeners that have joined us since 2007, Jocelyn Belbrunel appeared on the Jodcast uh, in that year and we'll put a link to that interview um, in the show notes. And she spoke then and she spoke at the Pulsar Conference here today um, about her very exciting discovery of pulsars. But today we're going to speak about something different and uh, I'm going to ask you about some more kind of um, recent concerns of yours and in particular um, the advocacy that you've undertaken for women in science.
2: Yes, that's uh, an issue that's been exercising me for a long time Um, and not just me alone. Going back quite a long way There was a small group of senior women of whom I was one that met occasionally after work of course to think what could be done about the number of women in science in the UK. We came up with an award scheme. Initially we were broke so what was (laughs) awarded was a rose bowl, Um, but we recognised that at least in university circles Uh, There was a degree of competitiveness between universities and we would award the Rose Bowl to the university that demonstrated itself to be most woman-friendly. And that morphed into the Athena Swan Awards, um, which were gradually growing in significance until one day the Chief Medical Officer of Health for England and Wales announced that if anybody wanted access to her funding for research they had to hold one of these Athena Swan Awards. Attaching money to something like this makes a huge difference.
0: I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I'd say that that lit a fire under people.
2: (laughs) That made it really serious. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry that it does really take money to do it, but it does seem to be the case I know yeah yeah Yeah. that often seems to be the
0: the way the world works and uh, I mean even though that hasn't always been so or it hasn't always occurred to people to value making their workplaces more diverse and making science more diverse because I know I mean your own experience of working uh,
2: as a physicist wasn't always ideal in that regard was it
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you think things are better now
2: Things are undoubtedly changing quite a lot. Uh, When I was a postdoc scientist, it was at a stage where women were expected to get married, Mm -hmm. so it wasn't clear how much education they needed to begin with. And secondly, having got married, they weren't to work. It was shameful if a married woman worked because it meant that her husband couldn't earn enough to keep them both, and that was definitely frowned upon. And it was also proven, in inverted commas, that if a mother worked, her children would be delinquent. Oh, good God. <laughs> I think we've enough evidence now to show that that ain't true.
0: <laughs> well, or, or, or else I'm an absolute delinquent myself. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we all are, aren't <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I, I'm actually, I just started a book um, by Angela Saini, um, which... Uh, is about those kinds of scientific studies, mm-hmm. uh, often inaccurate or not really well done over the years mm-hmm. that have yes. set back women yeah. in that way. Yeah. Uh, the book yeah. is called Inferior, by the way, and I right. recommend it, it's good. very, very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that women really have, I think, been set back by studies that have come out, like the ones saying working mothers would have delinquent children, mm. or saying that women's brains are less cut out. Yeah. To do science and even now even the whole scandal
2: at Google I don't know if you've mm-hmm. heard that. oh yes
0: yes I mean it's just still happening isn't it yes
2: it is uh, what we are probably most aware of is what's happening in Western culture in other parts of the world the attitudes to women and women being scientists can be dramatically different so for instance in China mm-hmm. Singapore um, it's absolutely normal for women to be engineers to be scientists. Yeah. Nobody raises an eyebrow yeah. at all. Um, so different cultures have got quite different histories of this. Mm-hmm. Which also suggests that some of the, the guff talked in this country maybe doesn't have a good sound basis. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, absolutely, because I mean if you know, if there's more parity between male and female scientists, say in China, it's obviously not something wrong with women's brains that's absolutely right yes it's the culture in the different yeah. countries I mean, you don't even have to be a scientist to spot that, yes. that trend no.
2: and in fact i have data from the international astronomical union which is the international professional body for astronomers and they collate their data by gender and it's very interesting you can see the different proportions of women in different countries
0: ah. And you can also
2: see the numbers in general gradually growing, mm, yeah. the percentage growing. I mean, it's
0: good to see that the percentages are growing um, across the board. But I wonder what it is about, uh, I wonder what the difference is between, say, Western culture and the cultures in other countries that, that, you know, that there's less parity, say, here than there is in China. I think Argentina was the best one, wasn't it? Mm, it's, um,
2: yes, South America is quite good. Yeah. Northern, uh, Southern Europe is also quite good. Okay. Uh, I think... In this country, I attribute quite a lot to the history over the last 60, 70 years. Mm -hmm. Um, When the Second World War was happening, Mm -hmm. because a lot of men were at the front, women were out working, then the war ends Mm -hmm. and the men are coming back from the front and they have to free up the jobs for the men. Ah. So suddenly there's great emphasis on women as homemakers uh, and I think we're only beginning to surface from that now.
0: Uh, I think getting th- things like that that are kind of ingrained in cultures can have a really lasting effect and can really take a long time yes. to deconstruct. Yes. yes. that That's
2: my picture of what has happened, and mm-hmm. I think it's true. Um, but an awful lot is sort of local cultural habits. Yeah. You know? yeah. In the Netherlands, the school children come home for lunch. Now, that really stops one parent that from working, Absolutely, doesn't. my yeah. goodness, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, things like that. Just yeah. what's considered norm in their country. Yeah,
0: and just even little things. I mean, that never struck me before about children coming home from lunch. Of course, that necessitates someone to be there. And, I mean, you know, yes. it's, uh, the unfortunate truth is it's more likely to be the woman, isn't, yes. It? Yes. isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. um i know i mean uh, an issue i guess that i think about a lot is um maternity and paternity leave cause, yes. um i think they're better here i mean in i know in ireland where i'm from there's no official government stance on paternity leave some companies mm. will offer it but i don't think it's certainly not equal. And I yeah. think
2: here they're a little bit better, but it's still not taken up very much. Yeah. Ireland's changing very fast.
0: I mean, Ireland's In making with, uh, great a great stride. With, with a president
2: who's gay and yes.
0: coloured, you know, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No one <laughs> would have guessed it. Exactly. Well, I always say, because, um, I mean, people over here often joke at me that, oh, we're very religious and we're very conservative. But actually, what Ireland is making, it's one of the countries now that's making huge yes. strides towards Kind of, and, and kind of democratic strides as well, which I think is important. So we, we legalized by popular vote. Um, gay right. America, yeah, that was a great vote. Wasn't it, it was, yeah, no, that was very exciting yeah. for us. But, but in this regard, we're still behind. And I think a lot of countries, even where it's a government has kind of made space for equal shared paternity
2: leave, it's not always no. used. It's not always taken up here either. Um She's so going back about 10 years now, but I know of one couple, both working in a university. And they had a child, young child, and they decided the best pattern would be for each of them to work four day weeks, yeah. but different four days, right? Yeah. so that the kid was in care for only three days mm-hmm. a week. So she went to her head of department and said, I want to work part time. And he said, fine, which days? Yeah. He went to his head of department who said, don't even think of it yeah yeah so it's there there are issues about still about the take up yeah again, it's getting better yeah but there's a lot of cultural bias to overcome
0: absolutely, and I mean, I think it's, it strikes me as so unfair to both people in that equation i mean mm. it's unfair that the mother is left at home
2: mm. yeah it's unfair
0: that the father doesn't get
2: to be at oh. home
0: yes yeah. um it's just not right for anyone, and presumably it might also be better for
2: the child, equal input from. Well, it's certainly, if there's equal input from the parents, the kid sees that both parents are carers. It's not the woman's job.
0: Exactly. And
2: so that doesn't get perpetrated into the next generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just
0: see that as being the norm. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. So, um, so, I mean, hopefully, like you said, things are
0: changing. And I know, yeah. I know it does take a long time, but um, yeah. you'd hope that that's kind of the direction
2: things are taking. It's moving, but it yeah. doesn't yet show much in the statistics, um, partly because while there may be a fair number of younger women at the student age, society still hasn't changed enough that it's equal for them in Mm -hmm. terms of having a career compared with a young man.
0: Well, exactly. And I mean, you know, for myself, kind of as an early career, um, you know, female scientist, you're kind of looking at the the numbers and the logistics and just thinking, how exactly is that going to work? (laughs) Yes, yes. So uh, some couples, I guess, might decide, okay, well, the the woman will go out and and work Mm -hmm. and... um, the man will stay home with the yes. child, but um, some do, yes, uh, you know, which is uh, a good thing to do. But um, it almost feels like for the woman going out into the workplace, there probably still are some biases and and inequalities that that she would face that might make mm-hmm. her fairer and not as well as um, her husband or her partner would if he were. If they were looking at, okay, well, if we're going to decide which of us is going to go out and work, you would hope this wouldn't be the case, but it almost feels like the man might still be more likely to earn more. Yes. The employer might
2: be afraid that the woman would get pregnant again.
0: I know. Well, exactly. (laughs) And, I mean, I've heard stories of employers yeah. Saying things like that, yes,
2: which they shouldn't. But no, they shouldn't, but it doesn't. happens. Yes, disheartening. Yes, it does. But we also have to recognise it's not just employers. Um, you know, you you hear parents saying, "Well, I'm very happy if my son does science engineering, but my daughter." Dot, dot 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 <laughs> well i mean i remember
0: when i came over here to manchester first uh speaking to my boyfriend's aunt and uh she was i don't think she'll be listening to this <laughs> um, she was asking me you know um, how are you getting on over there in manchester and i said grand and, and she said are there any um, do you know any other irish girls in the department and yeah. uh, as it happens i do know one now um but yeah. uh i didn't then i said no no there's a you know there's um not a lot of Irish people and there's not a lot of girls and you know not many girls um, do physics and uh, she kind of thought for a second she said yeah I suppose it is a very hard course all right (laughs) 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 Uh, and I didn't I mean I still kind of don't know her well enough to (laughs) to speak my mind. (laughs) But yeah. I was sitting there sipping my tea going, Oh my God <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I know. Um, just attitudes. Yeah. I had someone tell me that's no way to find a husband. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Which I wouldn't mind only, like it, it, it's 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 old fashioned and it's also not true. There's
3: no. way more men than
2: women yeah. in this field. Well, when I started secondary school uh the boys got sent to the science lab and the oh. girls got sent to the domestic science room. Oh, my No discussion, God. no choice.
0: Oh, just that's the way it's going to be. That's just the
2: way it is. And I
0: mean, did you accept that? No, no, (laughs) no, and nor did my
2: parents. So the next time the science class met, Hmm. there were three girls and all the boys. (laughs) Uh, um, And I came top in that class, and I'd love to think the school learnt something from that. You'd hope, wouldn't you? But I think it probably takes more than one freakish thing (laughs) like that. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely,
0: (laughs) goodness, well I mean, it was lucky for you and that the two other girls that you know you had supportive families who yes, um, we
2: did would really? not
0: tolerate yeah. that kind of
2: discrimination yeah I, and although the school didn't learn instantly by the time my sister who's six years younger than me went through the school she at least had a choice
0: okay okay yeah. so you know yeah even then there was the, a bit of change happening a bit of
2: change happening um,
0: yes and I suppose um fast forward back to the the present day um mm. You know, uh, like I mentioned, if I didn't, should have. We're uh, here. I'm, I'm interviewing Jocelyn because we're here at the 50 Years of Pulsars conference at Jodrell Bank. And um, one thing I did in preparation for this interview was to go off and look at the list of participants and yes. uh, count mm-hmm. how many were male and how many were female. And, um no, there's an error margin of about plus or minus three on each of these figures yeah. because I was a bit yeah. distracted. But uh there's about hundred and forty four men here mm-hmm. at the conference and about fifty two women. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: twenty
0: five percent um still so not great, is it? And then so I compared that then to um when I was doing my masters I went to the young European Radio Astronomers Conference, which is um mm-hmm. kind of an early career postgraduate student conference. That I'm sure you're aware of, but our listeners may not be. It's a tremendous one. But at that, the the split was much more equal. I think it was about 43, 44% women. So it, was, it was almost half. That's good. Yes, yeah. That's really, yeah. Good. Um, and I remember, and that was the first conference I ever went to. Yep. I remember thinking, oh, this is great. You know, yes. astronomy is so equal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and then a couple of months later, I went to an EVM symposium in Bordeaux, and uh, its gender balance was much more similar to, to, this. to yes. today's um, yes. but uh, I suppose it's good to see at least that for, for younger students, for early career
2: students there's um, more of a parity. But we need that breakdown, that parity to propagate through to the more senior levels Yeah. and I think it's probably still the case that there's a greater dropout wastage mm-hmm. rate right, mm-hmm. for women than yeah. for men.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Partly
2: family issues
0: but I mean yeah. I think mean, that's a really big one. Yeah. And, you know, we mentioned before about childcare. I mean I think childcare costs are yeah. are just um I mean for some people it ends up not being worthwhile yeah. for one parent to even work. Yes. Um because you would spend as much as you um, earn on your own with child care. On yes. childcare, which is just yeah. a real disgrace. Yes. Um, so I mean I suppose uh You've won awards for your work advocating women in science. It's, you've kind of had the role of spokeswoman mm, for yes. equality in science almost yes. thrust upon you, really. Um, yeah. <laughs> how do you feel about just by being a woman in science and a famous woman in science? By default, that kind of makes you a spokeswoman for women yes. in science. Yes. Um, is that a role yeah. that's comfortable for you?
2: Yes, it, it is, um, because I am very concerned about mm. the sociology of of science and. I'm fully aware that the most successful groups are the most diverse groups, not just gender diversity, but having people from all sorts of backgrounds, nationalities, and so on. Well, I mean,
0: absolutely, which isn't even something we've touched on in this conversation, but it's a huge issue as well mm-hmm. for being a more diverse group. Even just, again, from a scientific standpoint, the more diverse your
2: sample, the more different minds and people with yes. different experiences you, yes. you have in a group. And um, people will come at a question from different angles, ideally. they yeah. should be encouraged to do exactly. so. Yeah. And that helps... Gain understanding. Yeah. If everybody thinks the same and does the same thing, um, you may totally miss the target. Exactly. Mm. Yeah.
0: Although I suppose um, a diverse group, when it runs smoothly, is um going to be more you know better and more productive.
2: But they tend to be a bit harder to run smoothly. They are mm-hmm. harder to manage. Yeah. And one of my bees in my bonnet mm-hmm. is I, I think more of us should have training in how to manage groups of people. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, which is. Pretty rare in academia. I mean, just to manage people at all.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. It's not something we get any information about, really. No, you can see some people doing it spectacularly badly, and some people doing it really well. Yeah, but it just seems to be complete happenstance. You know, some people are just, you know, have a talent for it, and others don't. But mm. no, it's not really something that mm. academics are trained in. But anyway, nearing 20 minutes now that we've been speaking, and uh, we have okay, sessions to get back to. Back mm. So uh, I'm going to wrap this up. But um, Jocelyn, thank you very much uh, for speaking to us and for uh, for appearing in the podcast for a second time. My pleasure. Wow. Perhaps in ten years you'll be back on for a third.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I might be pushing up the daisies. Sorry. No. <laughs> well, thanks a million. <laughs> thank you.
1: Thanks for that, Fiona.
0: Welcome now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and now we have um, a series of short interviews uh, with other conference attendees. Um, all of them accosted, I think, by Fiona outside the lecture theatre with a portable microphone and recorder. Your first victim uh, <laughs> in this series of
4: ambushes. The, right? Yeah, in
1: this series of ambushes, um, <laughs> is are uh, Rob Archibald and Emily Parent uh, about
5: their Pulsar research.
0: I'm here with Emily Parent and
5: Robert Archibald,
0: and they are both students of. Vicky Kathy, whose name I should remember because I saw her talk this morning and I was really, really impressed. You've already told me you're both working on two completely different things, but I thought since it was the same supervisor, it was a a bit of a common thread. Do you want to just tell me a bit about what you're going to be working on in your PhD? I did my master on the PIAFA survey. That's a survey using the Aristibo telescope in Puerto Rico, and we scanned two parts of the galactic disk and we look for radio pulsars. My master thesis is about implementing a fast-folding algorithm to search the data for new pulsars, and this search is targeting long-period pulsars. And for my PhD, I'll be just continuing uh, working on that, more stuff, more discovery with T-Alpha. When we say long period, how long are we talking here? Longer than 500 millisecond pulsar? People will say that long period is more than two seconds, but I'm really searching down to 500 milliseconds. This is hilarious for me because I'm also (laughs) transient, but my long period is several years. Rob, do you want to tell us a bit about what you're working on or what you have been working on?
5: Sure. So I just finished my PhD with Vicky. I work on X-ray surveys of young pulsars so I tend to look at young pulsars when they do either really interesting things like these magnetars, which will once in a while get a thousand times brighter than they used to be, and then go back to normal. And I've worked on some of those that have sort of repeated themselves. So we have one that has these three beautiful bursts, bursts and cool down and bursts and cool down, once every five years for the last 15 years that we've known about the source. And as well, each time it does that, its spin-down rate shoots down and then starts to wobble back to normal and shoots down and wobbles back to normal. And we don't know why it's doing this, and it's the only Pulsar we've seen do this. That's what your
0: PhD thesis was on? And, sorry, what was the title?
5: The X-ray Timing of Young pulsars.
0: I'm writing up my thesis at the moment, and people keep on asking my thesis title. And I actually don't remember. Have you defended?
5: Uh, yes. Oh, congratulations.
0: What's going to be next for you?
5: I'm starting a postdoc at the University of Toronto with uh, Martin Van Kirkwick and Whaley Penn.
0: Cool. Well done. I know someone in Toronto. Is it the York University or the University of York? Is is that the same one?
5: That's also a university in Toronto.
0: But not the same one that you're doing. Okay. That's great. Good luck with that. Well done on finishing your PhD. Well done on starting yours. Enjoy the
1: rest of the conference. Okay, thanks for that, Fiona. Now, Fiona interviews Rebecca McFadden uh, about identifying pulsars with machine learning. Uh, See if you can spot the cameo by a wasp.
0: Okay, so hello again. It's me, Fiona, and I'm here with Rebecca McFadden um, at the Pulsar conference. So, uh, Rebecca, do you want to introduce yourself?
3: Hi, I'm Dr. Rebecca McFadden from the University of Oxford, and I'm working in uh, machine learning for pulsar detection. Oh, cool. On machine learning, Yeah, that's a real hot topic
0: at the moment. (laughs) It's uh, something that we hear about, um, I mostly hear about through gravitational lensing, but uh, how how does it apply to PULSARs?
3: So basically we have lots and lots of candidates when when we uh, do a PULSAR survey, and we have to look at very clever ways of determining which candidates are worth keeping and which aren't. (laughs) Um, and so if you start using machine learning, that's a very quick way of identifying good candidates. So it's the same as any science project with lots and lots of data. Okay, so um, can
0: we maybe talk about in more detail like how that works? So you're,
3: you've got a computer and you're, you're
0: asking it to look at large data sets and form some kind of conclusion
3: about them? <laughs> <laughs> so... I, I really don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good start. Um, so we're looking at signals um, and pulsars, as the name suggests, are uh, pulse-like. Okay. So, so you'll get a spike in your data. Um, and sometimes that will be from a scientifically interesting object like a pulsar or a rotating transient or there's a few different classes of objects. Other times, however, it's just radio frequency interference. So we're here at the telescope, and we have to have our phones turned off. Don't I know it. (laughs) And uh, part of the reason for that is when you have phones and uh, TV transmissions and all of those sort of things, the dish uh, picks those up. Oh, no. A wasp. A wasp. Oh, God.
0: (laughs) I think they're chasing me around all day because I've got this big flower in my hair. Anyway.
3: (laughs) Yeah, so we we have to use very um, sophisticated algorithms to work out what might be radio interference, and what might actually be a real uh, scientific um, event, basically. Oh, cool.
0: cool. Um, I think it's uh, really great that they're teaching computers how to do that, because uh, it's kind of hard for humans to do. <laughs> and certainly, uh, so I spend a lot of my PhD weeding out RFI from uh, level data. In fact, so I'm, I'm very happy that people are being told to turn off their phones. Uh, so I'm, I'm very excited at the thought of computers being taught how to do that. And um, So just to kind of segue a little bit, you're here with... Uh, two non-astronomer guests. <laughs>
3: um, yeah, so I've brought my three-year-old and my six-year-old over. My six-year-old would probably make an argument that he's he's a little bit of an astronomer. <laughs>
0: Is he really? Well, I mean, aren't we all astronomers? In a sense? I think I started being an astronomer when I was about three years old. And I uh, remember it was because I was I was afraid of the moon. I, I used to be really scared of the moon, and uh, I used to like to keep an eye on that. And I always feel like that's why I became an astronomer, you know, so I could kind of know what it was up
3: to <laughs> all, at all times. This isn't his first conference, is it? Um, no. His first conference, he was four months old, and he went to the uh, International Cosmic Ray Conference in Beijing, in China.
0: So he's pretty <laughs> well-traveled and well-educated already. <laughs> well, cool. Well, uh, thank you so much for
3: doing the interview. It was really nice
4: meeting you. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks for that, Fiona. Now... Uh, <laughs> Now Fiona's (laughs) interviewing Emma Osborne about mountains on neutron stars.
0: I'm here with Emma Osborne from Southampton University. Uh, Emma,
4: do you want to tell us uh, what your field of study is, please? Sure. So um, I'm a PhD student and I'm researching how neutron stars can make gravitational waves by growing mountains. Mountains. (laughs) <laughs> well, mountains is a little bit misleading. Because neutron stars are so compact, then they have these incredibly strong gravitational fields. It makes them the most... smart objects in the universe so for them to make gravitational waves they need to deform somehow and uh, they can do that by growing a mountain but these mountains are it's at most the- about two or three millimeters tall <laughs> that's not much of a mountain so much as a molehill I would have said um, if even um, but how do they how do they form the mountains Okay, so one idea is that the neutron star has to be accreting so it will have a companion star that's a main sequence star just like our sun and the gravitational field of the neutron star draws matter onto its surface from this neighbouring star and essentially what you need is some hot spots to develop and then these nuclear reactions that change the density in different parts of the star actually start happening closer to the surface of the star. My job is to see how big a hotspot we can get because that determines how big a mountain can grow. Okay, and then the mountain causes enough of a gravitational deformity, I guess, to make a gravitational wave, is that what happens? Yes, so to make gravitational waves, you need mass movement and a funny shape. And the mountain creates that funny shape. So as the star spins, it kind of this mountain kind of like hooks onto space-time and stirs it up as it rotates and that produces gravitational waves. Cool. So uh, do you do observations, or is it mostly just kind of simulations and theoretical work that you do? It's completely theoretical. So. I awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So I use a mixture of pen and paper mathematics, and then when the equations get too hard to solve by hand, I then put them into the computer and do simulations. Cool, and uh, how far into your PhD are you? I'm just about to start my third year, so I'm a little over halfway. Okay, yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that, because when I was starting my third year, people were like, oh, so you're nearly finished, and I was like, oh, no.
0: Because <laughs> uh, I'm near the end of my fourth year and just about to submit, so uh, you got plenty of time. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I to so. say. Yeah. Well, the best of luck with it, anyway, and uh, yeah, nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you, too. Thank, Thank you. you.
1: Cheers, Fiona. Now, Fiona, in her final sort of swan song, interviews Anne Archibald about their research into Pulsars.
0: So I'm here uh, at the Fifth Year's in Pulsars conference dinner with Anne Archibald. Um, Anne, do you want to just take it away?
6: Sure, yeah. I'm here to talk about a fantastic result we have working with Nina Kuzinskaya, with Jason Hessels, with uh, a whole bunch of Pulsar people. We found this awesome Pulsar. In fact, we found it with a broken telescope. The Green Bank Telescope was broken. They couldn't (laughs) point it. So we just picked an elevation, let the sky roll past, and there have been so many awesome pulses that came out of that. This one is a triple system. Millisecond pulsar orbited by a white dwarf every 1.6 days, orbited by another white dwarf every 327 days.
5: Yeah, it's the only
6: one, well, asterisk. Almost the only one, though. Only one with two stars. And cool, we did some timing, interesting source. But, it lets us test this cool feature of relativity. I, you may have heard of this idea that, one of the ideas of relativity is that if you are in a box laboratory sitting on the Earth, you have with 1g acceleration, you do experiments, or you're in an elevator accelerating upwards in space with 1g, you mm-hmm. can't tell the difference, the equivalence principle. Yeah. And that's not just true for mixing chemical kind of experiments, it's true for gravitational experiments. If you've got a torsion balance, you can't tell the difference. And it turns out GR is the only theory that's true for. So testing that is great. The problem is to test it, you need things that have strong gravity, and it's hard to build a thing with a strong gravitational field in your laboratory. So we do it in space. And so the Earth-Moon-Sun system, for example, you ask, does the Earth fall the same way in the sun's gravity as the moon? answer so far is yes. The problem is the strong gravity of the Earth well, if you take the gravitational binding of Earth, divided by the mass over c squared, you get one part in a billion. But we have a neutron star, and the mass is, the binding energy is a tenth of its mass. Right. So this is a great system. If ever it's okay. gonna show up, it's gonna show up here. Okay. So we ask, well, does the neutron star and the white dwarf fall the same way in the gravity of the other white dwarf? So we've done this long, we've got five years of observations, detailed observations, We've been working on it really hard. I mean, the standard way to do pulsar timing is you just make a model, you fit it to your data, you get the fit results and the uncertainty based on your noise, yeah. and so we tried that, and we had this very uncomfortable situation <laughs> where the fit value didn't seem to agree with GR, oh, no.
4: and you don't want to like, claim that if you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And exactly. I knew
6: we were wrong, yeah, because yeah. our telescopes didn't agree with each other, Yeah. but I couldn't say how wrong, yeah. Or what our limits were, our or y- didn't know what to do about it. Or
0: why you were wrong, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
6: And so we now have a result because we figured out, well, we did improve our wrongness. Yeah. But the main thing is we've managed to measure our wrongness. So we can say, we know, this is working with Nina Gusinskaya, we can measure that there are wiggles in our data that look like what we're looking for but aren't.
4: Right.
6: That are 50 nanoseconds long. And okay. I mean, 50 nanoseconds is... 150 feet, 30 meters. It's it's not not far. It's not a big wiggle. Exactly. But it's bigger than we could theoretically detect.
4: And, you know, so you spotted a kind of pattern.
6: Yeah, and so we were able to say, well, look, there are 50 nanosecond wiggles. Mm -hmm. So there could easily be a 50 nanosecond wiggle that cancels out with a GR violation.
4: Right. With a gravity
6: violation. So that's where our limit comes from. Okay. Now, that means there are still 50 nanosecond wiggles, when in theory we can take the 7 nanosecond wiggles. So there's room, a lot of room for improvement here.
0: Uh-huh.
6: If we can figure out how, where our wiggles are coming from, <laughs> we can get better. Okay,
0: okay. So it's
6: still preliminary. This is why we haven't oh, published yet. So
0: you're still kind of but quantifying this. at
6: 50 nanoseconds, our result is still about 50 times better than the best current result. Okay. And this is not because we're brilliant. I mean, although I think we've got some really good people.
0: You sound brilliant to me, to be fair.
6: The difference is that we've got a neutron star to work with when they yeah. have the Earth.
0: Okay. And the gravity see.
6: of a neutron star is fantastically stronger. Because
0: a neutron star, right, it's about centimeters. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an incredibly
6: dense, bizarre, yeah. preposterous yeah. object yeah. Yeah, 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 that also incredibly serves as a super accurate clock
0: uh-huh, that uh-huh. sends
6: radio signals so you can measure the clock uh-huh. from... 4,000 light years away. So it's a fantastic object. Okay. So it's a fantastic test of this principle of GR. And so we are already 50 times better than the best current test. And we're not ready to publish because we're hoping to maybe squeeze that down a bit. And of course we have to write it up in detail. Mm -hmm. But it's a very, very promising result. And it was made possible by our ability to quantify these, to measure these wiggles that are left in our data.
0: Yeah, yeah. uh... And
6: I say wiggles. The biggest one I've found so far is, it turns out our source is almost in the plane of the ecliptic. So every march, oh, as it crawls across the sky, as the Earth goes the sun, <laughs> yes. it passes not yeah. behind the sun, it's within yeah. four diameters of the sun. Oh, no way. <laughs> and so, you can imagine that there's some stuff coming off the sun that messes our signal. We yeah. were off it, we wouldn't look at it at all. Yeah. But radio, the sun's brightness doesn't bother us so yeah. much, but the excess gunk coming off the sun, exactly. the solar wind.
0: Don't I know it. <laughs> and so
6: figuring out what to do with the solar wind is one of the ways I'm hoping we can improve our results.
4: Okay, okay. But we're it's already at the point the of yeah.
6: dramatically better than the best current test. Cool. And so I'm gonna have to. I'm also gonna have to look into which specific theories do we shoot down. Einstein is looking good, <laughs> but his competitors, you know, they're, they're shifty, right? Okay, they, okay. they can maybe tune some parameters and get close enough to GR to pass yeah, our test, but we'll yeah. still have to see quite which theories we shoot down.
4: That's, uh, but it's an
6: exciting result, and we're looking forward to writing it up.
4: That
0: is really exciting. That's great. You know, thank you so much for telling me about that. No um, problem. Just remind me, what is your affiliation?
6: I work at the Anton Pannekoek Institute at the University of Amsterdam.
4: Oh, hello lovely.
6: Oh, wonderful. Yeah. We've got a, a great pulsar group there. Yeah. A lot of high-energy people studying equations of state, yeah. creation of neutron stars. Uh-huh.
4: Uh-huh. It's a good place to work. Good. Cool. Great. Well, it was really nice to to you. Thank, Thank you so much for telling me that story. No problem. It was uh, really exciting, and uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing more.
6: Sure, yeah. Well, <laughs> we're hoping to publish soon. Maybe we yeah. can come back and tell you about yeah, it. absolutely. Do you let us know. <laughs> sure. Thanks.
1: Thanks for all of those, Fiona. We enjoyed those incredibly. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't quite fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. Uh, so this week, uh, I've brought, in keeping with tradition of whenever I do one of these, uh, I've brought something exoplanet related. Before, about a week ago, um, we generally, generally thought that the first exoplanets were discovered in 1992. Um, but, recently some evidence has come out that we might not actually, that might not be right. Um, it turns out that our field may be a lot older than we actually thought Um, the first exoplanet was thought to be discovered in 1992 around, um, well coincidentally enough given the subject of all our interviews around a pulsar Um, so the lovingly named PSRB1257 plus 12b you'd almost think this was a pulsar special show wouldn't you? yeah it's almost, (laughs) uh, there's there's almost some level of interweaving Mm. between all of our Mm. subjects but yeah, um, they, this was um, planets were found around this pulsar through um, basically timing the signals, and they arrived late and early, um, and from that, people worked out gravitationally that there were planets there. Um, so this was this has always kind of been held up as the big first planet discovery. Um, it turns out that in 1917, um, someone may have accidentally stumbled across evidence for the existence of planets. Not through, though, a direct measurement of these planets. And we should at this point say that the planets that they discovered weren't there anymore. Um,
0: Sorry, yes, weren't there anymore? were
1: there when they discovered them. Uh, um, Ooh, how does that work? <laughs> yes, good waste. there's more. Did
0: they leave, like, a trail of crumbs or something? Pretty
1: much, yes. So um, Adrian Van Marnen um, was in 1917. He was looking at um, some, basically, looking for stars that had a high proper motion, Um, And he found a couple of them um, called, lovingly enough, in keeping with our excellent names, Van Marnen 1 and, wait for it, Van Marnen 2. (gasps) This is beginning to sound more and more like a fairy tale. I know. (laughs) I
0: did not see that coming.
1: (laughs) Van Marnen 2, Van Harder. Um, (laughs) So anyway, um, yeah, so so it turns out that Van Marnen 2 was a white dwarf. And so someone took a spectrum of the uh, of of Van Maanen two, and, and um, they kind of looked at it and then just put it away for about well sort of I think it's yeah coming on to a hundred years now. When we actually look at the spectrum, people have done it again very recently. Um, they found when yeah so when when you take a spectrum of a white dwarf, you expect to find a very high sort of almost entirely hi- hydrogen and helium. Because they're kind of weirdly gaseous, and all the heavy stuff sinks sinks to the bottom um but when they've taken a high resolution spectrum as of i think it was it was uh, earlier this year i think um they found that there is a really still a really high um a really large amount of uh heavy things like iron calcium magnesium um and all of these should have just sunk to the bottom within like a hundred thousand years of the white dwarf forming mm-hmm. and it's Older than that. So this is follow-up measurements from a different. So they, uh, right? So this, this is follow-up measurements. So when they they kind of when when they did the original um, spectrum in 1917, they didn't quite have the resolution that we have now. They found something, and kind of went, "Oh, that's weird," and couldn't explain it, and then put it in a cupboard. Um, as that's you,
0: what I do with anything yeah. that I can't explain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, anything
1: you don't want to do, you just put it away. So they found um, all these heavy elements, and they shouldn't be there. Um, and so, what has been theorized is that um, when the original star expanded and um, into its red giant phase, uh, it kind of destroyed all the planets around it without in- without actually like consuming them, as oh, it were. Okay. So it kind of left left like this massive um, disc of dust and asteroids hmm. that were all made up of the he- heavy stuff that planets are made out of. And so, once all the gases dissipated. Uh, you're just left with this white dwarf with a massive, like, post-planetary ring, as opposed to a protoplanetary ring, hmm. I suppose. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: and then all of this stuff has just been falling onto the white dwarf and uh, fueling it, um, and basically replenishing all this stuff that's falling in. Um, so they, so we, I, I should add that we don't know for certain that this is how it's happened, but this is looking by far and away the most likely scenario yeah. for to actually have the amount of stuff that you would the the amount of heavy metals that you would need to keep replenishing. To
2: keep um it, yeah. so like we,
1: we you can do it from just like the odd bit falling on. Uh-huh,
2: but we uh-huh. wouldn't
1: see it to the levels that we see it. Um and so they've they've that, that, actually uh, around about thirty or so similar white dwarfs have been found. Huh.
0: Um with with kind of post
1: planetary things. Uh, yeah. I'm, I mean, I, this, this evidence, is... Yeah, it's not their official
7: name. No, th- what well, oh, is it now? Is, this yeah. is, I've, I've just um, coined this. I dub the post <laughs> <laughs> <fantasy> Ring. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: just trying to imagine, like, you were saying all the heavy stuff that makes up mm. planets, and, you know, so, like, I don't know, rocks and yes. bits of metal. Heavy rocks. Yep. Is there anything man-made that would survive that?
1: Concrete, maybe, Concrete. but like, I, I, how how would you how would you see it as man made though? Yeah, well, it we wouldn't
0: perceive it as man made from our vantage point. Yeah. we can just look at the spectrum. But I'm just imagining what it would be like up there. If you oh, what if there's there.
1: like a big statue of Liberty? Floating
0: yeah, around just floating somewhere. around. Yeah, what, what what would it look like if that happened to the Earth? Would there just be like random little bits of like? landmarks
7: and well I mean if, it, if it's Great Wall of old, China floats or Volvo estate <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Nokia sure phones are
0: that are basically indestructible in like <laughs>
7: yeah, to be fair Nokia phones will
1: survive <laughs> anything <laughs> Nokia phones and cockroaches those
0: are the two things you'll find <laughs> so so somewhere up in space the there's a white dwarf with a ring of Nokia phones and cockroaches around <laughs>
3: Presumably, why have they not called for help?
0: If they've <laughs> evolved in the same way that we've evolved, which we'll get onto yeah. in the next. Episode. Oh yeah, we will actually. Yeah. Perhaps <laughs>
1: that might be a perfect segue. Do you th- Are you so finished? I, you I'm finished talking. D- yeah, about- no, I, I'm done. So. Let let us segue away uh, into whatever it is Fiona has brought for us this time.
0: Well, what I have brought this time um, is this really, really weird and cool paper um, in this astrobiology journal, um, the name of which doesn't uh, come to the tip of my tongue because I'm not an astrobiologist. So it's in the International Journal of Astrobiology, and it's called Darwin's Aliens. Uh, and it's a group of astrobiologists who are trying to make predictions about what alien life would be like, based on what we know about how life on Earth has developed. Um, so often, when we're thinking about how aliens uh, might be, uh, you can kind of make statistical <coughs> predictions based on instances of things that you see here on Earth. So, for example. Uh, over 40 different versions of the eye have developed hmm. on Earth. Uh, so it's statistically likely that that would also happen elsewhere, that that's, that's yeah. something that can be replicated and can be developed independently a lot of different ways. And that, you know, a lot of different, very different species have come to that same conclusion of having eyes. Uh, likewise, we're carbon-based, and carbon is hugely abundant uh, in the universe, uh, so it's very likely, statistically, that other organisms would be carbon-based. But those are just statistical um, hmm. predictions. Then, that, like, That's not to say that there aren't, like, eyeless silicon aliens. I, I, no, we're getting
1: on to evolution now. <laughs> <apparently, though. laughs> I, 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 I really like the carbon-silicon-based life forms, because there's the, the Terry Pratchett trolls which are made, made they're, they're silicon based life forms so they just look like hmm. rocks with arms <laughs> so they're, they're, they're humanoid and work in completely the same way but they're just wherever we have carbon they have silicon they have silicon yeah. Yeah. they're just made out of rock yeah. well that's like evolution was, as well like right? yeah. you know the, the show in the film where you can yeah, then yeah, kill yeah. them with selenium yeah shampoo oh is that the one with the smiley face in three
0: yeah so anyway <laughs> uh, <laughs> moving quickly along um, so that's one way of making predictions about what aliens would be like. Uh, but another another angle you can come at it from is to kind of look at how life has developed here on Earth and use that to constrain how life might develop elsewhere. Uh, so what they've done is there, if you're just interested in like evolution, it's a really interesting paper mm-hmm. to read. Um, if you want to kind of brush up on what evolution is and how it works and why it's so interesting. So natural selection has kind of determined some things about what life is like here. And so um, life forms that undergo natural selection they have heredity, uh, which means like they pass on their genes. Uh, They have variation, which means like we're not all identical to each other. And then they they experience what's called differential success. So like the classic example is giraffes with shorter necks were at a disadvantage compared to giraffes with long necks, because giraffes with long necks could reach the tops of the trees and bite the leaves. And so um, that means that if alien life is also undergoing natural selection, um, it will have those traits. Um, and they reasoned that, so, so that's a big if, um, or it could be a big if, do, do alien species actually also experience natural selection? Is that how they develop? Um, these people reason that they, that they do, um, uh, because essentially, if they didn't, they would never progress beyond just tiny, little, single-cell organisms.
2: Yeah, cell well, I organism. mean, we,
0: we,
1: we, see, we see natural selection and the, the effects of evolution mm. and the steps of it in, like, even things that aren't alive. So, yeah. So, like, um, planets or whatever. Like, if, if you have, if like, there are selection criteria.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why are
1: we here? Well, it yeah. might just be a selection bias of we were in the right place at the right time exactly. and everything else didn't mm-hmm. work.
0: Exactly. And so, um, they say that like so species that develop in that way uh they they end up having this kind of nested structure, so they start off you start off with something that's just a few cells and then the cells all combine together to make a multi cell organism, and then those all combine together to make something a bit more complex and each each iteration is made up of um uh the bits of the last thing um so then the 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 more complex animals come together to form like societies essentially mm-hmm. um so so each of them can be thought of as being little...
1: Um. Oh, so they're, so they're treating society, like a society, yeah. almost, mm-hmm. like, as an mm-hmm. organism itself.
0: Yeah, yeah, they are, they are. Which oh. um, And uh, they go on to say, like, that's as far as we've gotten.
1: Yeah. Um, I feel like you can definitely describe some mm. people as pathogens. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh. if you want to make that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was looking at Niall while I said that. I and see, I'm not why. the only one in here with the
0: evolutionary-related <laughs> sick
7: burns.
4: <laughs> Getting back onto trap with evolution.
7: <laughs> to evolve past this human. You know.
0: oh. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, um uh, they say that it might go even further with aliens, that they might have some the the expression they used was hideously complex. Um structure that goes beyond the kind of, I guess, the societies we have, can be thought of as sort of loose organisms that interact together. And again, because they've got common interests, um, mm-hmm. so they overcome conflicts. Um, so like, say we, in the, in the way that we overcame the conflict of all insulting each other. All those
4: sick All the mean things we were saying to <laughs>
0: Um So, you know, that... Um, that a thing, any entity which overcomes conflicts within itself to to unite for a common interest can be seen as an organism so yeah. um, so so these are kind of just general traits that they say if, if aliens de- um, have developed according to natural selection that's what they would be like um. If we, if we are looking out for aliens, um, they say that just kind of logically speaking, we can expect them to have the sim- similar kind of nested structures of life forms to what we have. Um, so um, constituent parts coming together to work for the common good of the overall group of whatever it is they are, be it cells or um,
1: organs or um, individual beings. Thanks, Fiona. That's a really cool paper to take a look at. What have you brought along, Niall?
7: Uh, Let's get get on to Brian Cox, then. Just to paint a picture for you, okay, I was on my way to uni, getting some coffee from the local uh, coffee shop, and I spot this uh, student-written newspaper, the Mancunian, which has an article about where Brian Cox has failed. So I'm not saying I agree with this, I'm just presenting it, and you can make your own decisions. Um, We are non-partisan show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I, one of us has to be. Um, <laughs>
2: <laughs>
4: so
7: I believe that this is just basically a catchy title, right, to get in, you know, get people reading it. Welcome you know, to
2: journalism. Yeah,
7: Brian Cox, famous. Brian Cox from Manchester. So, you know, everyone's going to then go, oh, i better read that. How has he failed? So really what the actual issue is, it's quite an important one, facing scientists these days, and it's how to deal with people who who reject the, you know, the experts' claims reject science. So, like, there's a, like a, a growing pop- popularity in, well, all over the world really, with politicians now who kind of reject the view of experts. I don't know whether you'd agree with that, but um, no, I mean, no, I mean I think, I think we are to, all tired yeah, of
0: exercise. Exactly, we are all tired of it, yeah. yeah.
7: <laughs> um so yeah, so like for instance we've got say creationism in schools still, um, there's still people who claim you know, you know make claims for anti vaccine, so like not bothering with vaccinations for their children and even though science is basically going completely against this and uh, and this this article basically brings brings about the fact that there's these scientists out there who are kind of sort of bewildered by these people's like sort of stoic beliefs in these anti-scientific views and then how do you deal with that? Like, And it's quite an important question. So how, how can I go about convincing these people that I don't want to say they're wrong, but like that maybe that their view is not the only way and may, maybe in some cases it's more sensible to go with what science is saying even if maybe you don't agree all the time i'm Sweet. rambling now but no, I, uh, no, no, yes. so so what,
1: what what is it then that within yeah so i, I think the, the question we need to ask as a scientific community mm. is perhaps why people don't always just don't don't believe the scientists and i think that's that's the important mm. word there is yeah, belief, belief. Mm-hmm. and there's there seems to be a because I mean, we're, we're recording this in a physics department. Like everybody here is very well-versed in the scientific method, uses it themselves yeah. and understands and writes papers and sort of knows how to critically analyse these, re- these research and the, yeah. the, the data mm-hmm. that comes out. And I, I think perhaps there is a, because we have such a um, sort of first-hand experience of it, we know when someone is perhaps publishing on Vixra
2: or well oh, we have a yeah. we have
0: um a way of kind of inspecting that and deciding that yeah. for ourselves we have we have a system of kind mm. of checks and balances that we're all trained to do as scientists to determine whether or not we think something is um, credible credible yeah
4: yeah, yeah. And
0: like- um and so, but that not i guess that not everyone like people who haven't trained as scientists so haven't done um university degrees or, or even you know school uh secondary school courses in science wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily um have any reason to think in that way um, and,
1: and then even when we so if we then come along and have having said we've done all of this hmm. and um we think we we've shown that the world is warming up global warming exists um, I will say that, and I don't write in, I mm. put my name on it. Please don't write in.
7: <laughs> um. <laughs> actually,
1: <laughs> no. Please do write in yeah, because exactly. we want yeah. we want yeah. to yeah. hear from you. Yeah, I mean, but I guess yeah, I think, think
0: that's it. Actually, so I think for me, I think um, where a lot of these problems are coming from mm. is it's become this complete shouting match on yeah. both sides.
7: Us against them sort of yeah. mentality. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. People don't understandably don't like it when someone comes in and says, Well, I know much more than you about this, so I'm gonna just dictate to you what things are and um you must just believe me. You mm. know, I think uh, it's understandable maybe that um people don't necessarily go for that yeah. or um and you I know
7: I suppose you then end up with sort of like an inherent distrust of yeah. the experts. Yeah. Like because they're just if i if, if, if you go in there saying oh you're being stupid that's not the way to convince someone is it and I, like I, I think it comes about from a lack of understanding
1: on both sides how yeah, exactly. the other side thinks. exactly yeah. like,
0: and because because i feel like a lot of scientists um have no time at all um for the idea of belief um
1: yes. i mean there there was the i mean the i think the thing that's actually referenced in that article is um Brian cox going onto australian question time that's exactly what um, it was yeah
0: and what happened?
1: Um, um, so sorry, he, he was, climate change, yeah, basically shout, shouting at climate change. Yeah. Um, who? I mean, having spoken to some of my Australian friends in the department, um, they he he is now heralded as this big, like as in Brian Cox is held up for this. And yeah, uh, well, yeah, he basically he's just been invited back yeah. on. I think he's there yeah. recording. He, he
7: essentially absolutely shredded the guy for. Yeah. For, for believing, not believing in climate change and showed him all the, But the, the guy actually said, show me the data. And then Brian Cox went, well, actually, I do have this graph. And then, like, like, sort of basically, apparently proved that, well, mm. within, you know, yeah, um, demonstrated. Like, yeah, demonstrated yeah. that, that this is an issue that we should be concerned about. But, like, that this guy was not willing to listen, really. Um, but I wonder if that's the way it was presented rather mm, than yeah. maybe that he's,
0: because I feel like I just think there's a lack of engagement mm. on both sides. I mean, I think um, climate change deniers uh, will. I mean, there's, there's um, I don't know if uh, either of you ever read um, this this great play by Bertolt Brecht called The Life of Galileo, which is about um, it's it's is really good reading for any scientist, yeah, actually. It's yeah. about Galileo and it's about um, Galileo's experience with um you know, the society it's at the era, time, and there's this great scene where, um, you know, the church, the Vatican officials um, are in his study saying, you know, you have to take back what you've said, you, you can't be saying this, you have to take it back, this isn't true. And he's got a telescope all set up, and his telescope is pointing at Jupiter, and where you can see the Galilean moons. And he's saying, would you look through, the, if you look through the telescope, Please just look through the telescope and you'll see the moons and they're refusing to look because they say to him, we refuse to look because there's no point to look because it's not true and it's heretical and we're not going to look, uh, cause it's, um, there's no point because we already know what you're saying isn't true and he's, and he's there like just, if you'd please just take a look. And they're just refusing to even look at all, and it's um and you're you're there like just cringing mm. for him. <laughs>
1: there's, there, I, I, there's, there's another story involving Galileo actually. I think um, I, I, it might actually be part of the same particular tale. Yeah. Where he did actually get someone to look, um, someone actually put their eye up to the telescope, but they had them closed.
0: <laughs> really? Like, so oh they, my goodness! They
1: closed their eyes.
0: They and closed
5: look through the telescope a lot i can't no, see anything, I can't
0: say anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe that is i'm going to have to read it again actually it's really um, it should be mandatory reading for yeah
5: no you,
7: course, I'm, I'm, actually. I'm, yeah. Yeah. anyone who starts the science course maybe we yeah. could use
0: that as the Jodcast panto. <laughs> oh,
7: maybe. maybe oh
5: my god oh, that, yeah.
7: that's an interesting yeah. Out. Yeah. <laughs> Space. <laughs> <laughs>
0: anyway but i think um it highlighted quite well just um i mean in, well in that instance you know galileo was really trying hmm. to engage them and they weren't listening but i think now nobody's listening to anyone hmm. and i think now um you know, the climate change deniers are doing that thing of like, I won't even look at the graphs, I won't even acknowledge that this is a thing that, you know, can that I should take on board. But scientists also are saying, look, I won't make room um, for your beliefs, I won't accommodate the fact that you believe different things to me and attempt a dialogue.
1: I think, though, on the... So, I mean, obviously, obviously I'm not a climate scientist and mm-hmm. I, I, I have never done particular analyses of how thought processes have changed over time but from looking in terms of watching debates on this the for, uh, sort of over the last 10 years the debate has shifted very much less from climate change exists or climate change doesn't to climate change exists but did we cause it did we it? cause it that's and so I, I i think even on that on that particular front we're at least some way of going, OK, right, it's happening. Whether or not it's our fault, we should try and do so something. So that's a step in the right direction, right? Yeah, it yeah, is a step yeah. in the right
0: direction. And I, I guess, ge- um, sorry, go on. Sorry, you. I mean, I want to kind of um, give a disclaimer in that I don't at all think that all scientists have that attitude. No. It's a small and vocal minority like, mm. say, Richard Dawkins. Um, yes. I would also say that it's. I don't for a second think that we should be um, making giving equal weight to all beliefs per se or you know that or that we should be equal opportunities when it comes to what we believe and what we don't believe but that there should be at least um a sense of dialogue amongst ourselves and you know with each other maybe yeah yeah,
7: yeah. so probably, probably a good way to sum up is we need to start resolving our conflicts in a perhaps more peaceful way
1: yeah. and, <laughs> and perhaps also listening to people's answers yeah, yeah so to actually give us a convoluted link uh, we're going to move on now uh, <laughs> from a discussion that could go on for hours. It, 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 it could take up an entire show in itself. Uh, but we're going to move on now to um, Emma Alexander speaking to Professor Anascafe. Listening uh, in, to the
0: answers of And Anascafe. listening
1: to the, uh, the answers of Anascafe uh, with uh, this month's Ask an Astronomer.
0: Hello and welcome to Ask an Astronomer. I'm here today with Professor Anna Scaife, who will be answering all of your astronomical questions. Uh, I say all of them, just, just two, but uh, <laughs> here we go. Uh, so we've had a question from uh, Sean Mulcahy, who asks, what is the expected remaining lifespan for the Lovell telescope? I understand that the instruments can be continuously updated, but what about the superstructure? Keep up the good work. Oh, thanks, Sean.
8: <laughs> yeah, this is a great question. As Sean says, the, the instruments on the Level, the receivers that we use, are constantly being updated. The receivers are cutting edge. They're right at the forefront of astronomy science, and, and that's important both for us here at Jodrell Bank and for all of the other astronomers around the world who use the instrument. But the superstructure itself also gets updated. Um, anyone who's seen the Level Telescope will know that it's it's pretty impressive. You can see it for miles. It's, a, it's um It's a big thing, it's a heavy thing. (laughs) The dish on the level weighs about 1,500 tonnes. It's huge. And the the structure that supports it is correspondingly big, if you like, um, but also complex. And we, we do update it. So one of the things that gets updated most regularly, I don't know if you'd say regularly, but has been updated a couple of times is the surface on the dish. Obviously, the dish is out there in all weathers. Um, completely exposed, and like any other structure, bridges, buildings, uh, um, it, it suffers from the elements. And the original surface that went up on the telescope went up in 1957, which is a um, quite a long time ago now, 60 years ago. And it's actually been changed twice since that time. The first time it was changed was in the um, well, right at the end of the 1960s. It took until 1971 to get it changed. And the reason that it was changed was that there was actually some wear and tear on the bearings that actually moved the dish around. And so it was decided that we needed to put on two big wheel girders to distribute the weight of the dish more evenly on the rest of the structure, and and specifically onto the railway tracks that you might have seen if you've ever been to visit the level. The level rotates on, um, on railway tracks. And so two big wheel girders were put in. And... In order to make that work, the, the dish surface actually had to be raised from where it was previously. So again, if you, if you look at a picture of the level, you'll see that there's, there's kind of a, a rim, a vertical rim around the edges of the dish. And that rim raises the new 1971 surface above the old 1957 surface and, and, and makes it work with the new wheel girder, which is the big sort of semicircular thing you can see underneath the dish. So that was the first time that the surface was redone, in 1971, it was finished, but again it doesn't last forever, and so it was redone again um, in 2000, and it, it took about the same amount of time to replace it, about two years, so the surface that you see, or that we use now on the level, is actually the third surface. And it's not only about replacing the bits that are starting to rust and get affected by the weather. But we also improved the telescope when we replaced the surface. So the superstructure is actually scientifically important as well. And what we did every time we improved the surface was that we made it smoother. And a smoother surface means that you can observe at higher, higher frequencies, shorter wavelengths. And so we, we improved the capabilities of the telescope. The one thing we lost by, um, by putting the big wheel girder in place <laughs> was the ability to tip the telescope upside down.
0: i didn't realize that you used to be able to do that
8: yeah so i never saw it myself but um i've seen photographs of it so these days when you replace the receivers at the top of the telescope you literally have to go up and 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 take everything up with with you which is a huge job because it's a long way up but originally the whole surface used to tip upside down so the receiver cabin was facing downwards and you could just like stretch up and put the receivers in which must have been amazing I really wish that I'd been able to see it but yeah once the wheel girder was in place no more of that Uh Yeah. so the answer to the question is that the telescope will keep observing for as long as it's needed for science and since it is still the third largest fully steerable radio telescope in the world and it's very difficult to build fully steerable radio telescopes bigger than the level um, it's going to be scientifically important Basically, for the foreseeable future, so at least the next fifty years, possibly the next hundred, and we 'll just keep updating the superstructure in the same way that we keep updating the receivers.
0: Ah, brilliant, thank you. So our next question is from Yoda the Oak on Twitter.
8: <laughs> he says,
0: "Have we worked out if a galaxy has a magnetic influence on light, or is it just down to gravity
8: lensing?" This is a great question and and when I read it, I was like yes um this this." This actually uh, relates to a lot of the science that I do, and that Emma does. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, the answer is yes. The magnetic fields in galaxies do have an effect on light, in the sense that light is just another frequency of electromagnetic radiation. But it's not just the magnetic fields alone. So galaxies are full of magnetic fields, we know that. They're also full of electrons. And when you put magnetic fields and electrons together, they have a profound effect on electromagnetic radiation. And it's quite different from gravitational lensing that we see due to the gravitational mass of the galaxy. The effect that um, the magnetic fields have on uh, electromagnetic radiation is that they, they rotate its polarisation, which is perhaps not the most obvious um, thing to a lot of people. But basically what happens is that electromagnetic radiation has um, a preferential direction if you like, and that's known as its polarisation. And we literally define it as an angle. So when we make an image of incident radiation on the sky, we can make an image of the angle of its polarisation as well. And as that radiation passes through a galaxy, through basically a big ball of magnetic fields and electrons, the different components of the polarisation travel at different speeds. And this is a consequence of an effect called the Lorentz force, which is uh, something that you might even have seen at school, which is that electrons move in circular paths around magnetic fields. So depending on the direction of the magnetic fields in the galaxy, some of them will be moving in the same direction as the polarisation of the electromagnetic radiation, and some of them will be moving in the opposite direction, so clockwise or counterclockwise. And those two components of electromagnetic radiation then... Travel at different speeds because some of them are aligned with the motion of the electrons and some of them are anti-aligned with the motion of the electrons. And so when they exit the galaxy in the, in the foreground, so on their way to us, they've actually, their relationship between the two components has changed and that rotates the, the overall polarization of the electromagnetic radiation. Um, the effect is called Faraday rotation. And it's really useful because it allows us to look at the degree of rotation that we see from the galaxy, and then infer the strength of the magnetic fields that must have been there in order to cause it. And it's one of the primary ways that we're able to measure magnetic fields in the universe, because magnetic fields on their own are, well, they're very quiet. They don't produce anything that we can visibly see, so we have to look at the effects that they have on other things. But of course they're incredibly important. They're completely ubiquitous across all of the structure that we see in the universe from the very largest scales of, you know, cosmic structure formation down to the formation of protostars within our own galaxy. So measuring how strong they are is really important. And Faraday rotation is absolutely key to doing that. Brilliant.
0: Thank you very much, Anna. Cheers, Anna.
1: Thanks for that, Emma. And now we're moving on to the feedback. Um, After Luke & Co. last month begging uh, for you to send us in some feedback because they didn't have any, um, you have not failed to provide us. Now we are spoiled uh, (laughs) by the amount of feedback that we have received from you. So um, first up, Niall, I think, has a postcard um, from San Francisco. I do indeed.
7: Very far away, that. So this is from Christoph. Um, I'll read it out for you. So we've got... Dear Jobcast, On a recent long flight from Manchester to San Francisco, I had time to catch up with the recent episodes when I saw the beautiful celestial stamps at the post office. I knew it was a sign that I had to send you a postcard. Thanks. And Jod on. <laughs> and then we've got a... Uh, picture
1: of the uh it's like the golden gate bridge yeah, San yeah. 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 It, can yeah. we see the stamp is have, have we been sent a special it's the cool moon it's stamp i moon think stamp. we've had, yeah. we had
0: one like that before it's that cool global
1: moon usa yeah. forever
7: it.
0: yeah it's gorgeous <laughs> i it's love amazing. it
1: yeah yeah so thanks for that christoph so, Fiona, have you got anything for
0: us? Uh, yeah, I have an email. Um, the email is from HeinDeepPlaceBeast, and it says, um, Hi, guys, I can't believe you're not snowed under with emails every month. We listeners are all too lazy, I assume. I really love the October Extra. I love the extras generally, like a second breakfast. Oh, uh, yeah, I like me some second breakfast, too, to be yes. yeah, And the yeah.
7: yeah, And the levenses. <laughs> second dinner, yeah. <laughs> Brina as well. Yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah. 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 oh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: Especially the interview of Monique with Grant Munro. I would hate his job. Probably the one job where one mistake can cost billions of dollars and decades of man hours. I love the background music at the time of the interview. Any idea who the band is? Oh, we can we can find that out. Yeah, we um, we can we can we can
1: trace that down. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, your podcast is one of the few that I really love in the true sense of the word. Um, that's really nice to hear yes. yeah. um, um, by the way uh, you can take the April Fool alert off your contact page now and Ben has put in a little note here in the show notes to say that he's taken that down now sort of panic over, panic
1: over. <laughs> hopefully we
0: were getting emails about that for a long time
1: yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to move on to our, uh, <laughs> the, the first of our two Facebook pieces of feedback from Mark Leach uh, who says uh, hi Jodcast people uh, reading the new scientist ar- article about the LIGO result results of ne- two neutron stars colliding it says this is explained gamma ray bursts. Is there any chance that you can elaborate on this in the next Jodcast podcast? I actually covered this in the November news, uh, last month, oh. or early, or rather in the first one of this, of
2: mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. this
1: month's one. So just to clarify again, um, it's uh, basically there are gamma ray bursts that go off all the time and they are, they're, they're short gamma ray bursts. Um, and we don't know what's causing them, but we've seen a an almost identical gamma-ray burst from these merging neutron stars. So we...
7: And it was in a coincidental yeah, it, time it, it, as it the LIGO picked was, up was, the gravitational yeah, wave burst. So, um, yeah. so they
1: came yeah. from the same part of the sky as well. So the conclusion that you could draw from that is that all gamma-ray bursts are neutron star mergers or gravitational wave mm-hmm. producers. Um, I think perhaps one data point is not enough to do yeah. that, but it's...
7: I think it's, Defi- it's, it's definitely basically it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's definitely sh- or oh, as to a good error for approximation yeah. anyway. It's shown that um, neutron star mergers do cause gamma ray bursts, which yeah. which has always been sort of theorized but have not been directly detected. So it's a, yeah. it's a pretty
1: nifty thing. Ne- to have, Neutron uh, star mergers cause gamma ray bursts, but not all gamma ray bursts are, are from that. Yeah, exactly. Neutron star mergers, perhaps we don't know, um, but it's an explanation for. Mm-hmm. So, thanks, Ligo. Yeah, thanks, Ligo. Um, So, we have another Facebook uh, message,
7: or possibly comment, from uh, John Thomas saying, so, looking for a postcard, as you say you like receiving them. Non in Fuerteventura International, so a photo of some fish taken off the coast at Moro Hablé will have to do. Few stars
1: seen. I'm guessing it was cloudy. Yeah, we've all all been there. So, that's all the feedback we've had uh, this month. Um, so, if you fancy getting in touch with us, uh, you can do so uh, via the website at www.jodcast.net.
0: On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast.
1: At Facebook at facebook.com forward slash On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast.
0: On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast.
1: And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. So... That's the end of this episode. Uh, We'd like to thank uh, Fiona for all the interviews and for the attempted hijacking of the Jodcast. You're so welcome. We are still here, and we will still be here for many, many years. Um, I have enjoyed the one rendition of the Fiona show, though. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, the episode. one and only. <laughs>
0: <laughs> for now. <Yes. laughs>
1: dun, dun, yes. Recordings of this episode will be worth millions in the future. <laughs> um, so, yes, thanks to Fiona for the interviews, and also to Fiona and Niall for... Presenting, the editors were Adam Averson, Andrea Dogaru, Tom Scragg, Charlie Walker, Joseph Quofi, Emma Alexander and Luke Hart. The producer was Naomi Assambre frimbrow Until next time,
8: yeah. John, John.